friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 72 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me again is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. We missed you last time, Michelle. I missed you guys too, man. I was in a COVID-induced brain fog. That was not fun. Breakthrough COVID. I'm fine. Um, Omicron is very contagious. It is not fun to have. I do not recommend it. You know what's more fun? What's more fun? talking about dermatology research. I mean, heck yeah. What you got for us today, Michelle? Well, first I'm going to talk about an interesting hair-raising topic. Um, We're going to actually discuss the factors linked to premature graying of the hair. And this is by a researcher named Anushki Wardan. I think is how you say that name. Um, She is from Sri Lanka. And in this particular study, she looked at the socio-demographic characteristics and associated factors of participants with premature graying of the hair. Um, Premature graying of the hair has a couple of different definitions, and it actually is based a little bit on your heritage, what your definition of premature graying of the hair would be. So it is defined in Caucasians as graying of the hair before the age of 20. In African-American patients, it is graying before the age of 30. I don't know that there's a set in stone um, number for patients of Asian heritage or other heritage, but it is um, basically an early graying of the hair. Some people have maybe suggested 25 for the Indian subcontinent, including this author. But they wanted to also look at other factors that might be associated with premature graying of the hair. So they actually looked at a patient population and were able to determine that patients who had a family history of atopy or vitiligo were risk factors for the development of premature graying of the hair. And interestingly enough, they also found frequent use of hair gels as a risk. Um, They were also able to identify an increased risk in patients who consumed alcohol or smoked. So the results of this study were presented at the 13th International Congress of Dermatology of the International Society of Dermatology and the Australasian College of Dermatologists in November of 2021. And in this study, they looked over this kind of interview, interviewer implemented data collection that they'd done on about 135 patients that had premature, premature graying of the hair. And so, you know, this is when we, when you think about premature graying, you're like, maybe you're thinking in your head of, you know, some of our distinguished elder statesmen, you know, who are gray and they're like in their forties and they look good, but that's not what we're talking about graying happening before the age of 20 in some patient populations. We're not talking about Steve Martin, one exactly. of our distinguished elder statesmen. Yes, and, and also, you know, just an absolutely fantastic comedian. So much fun to watch. So very early. So 135 patients is, is a robust sampling of people with premature graying of the hair, which is not that common, fortunately. And most of them were aged between 11 and 15, which mm-hmm. is premature, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty early. I sometimes have this complaint, pretty rarely though, but as a pediatric dermatologist, I probably see one patient a year where their parent is like, why are they going gray already? By the way, the medical term for graying of the hair, there's a name. Ah, the pimping bell. Good old pimping bell. He or she or they like to ring when we have especially pimpable content, test-worthy, if you will. Canities, C-A-N-I-T-I-E-S, refers to just gray hair that we'll all get, at least if we'll all get if things go according to plan. 
<laughs> it beats the alternative for sure. That means you still have hair to turn gray and you're still alive to turn it gray. So I, I thought this was an interesting study. Um, the author had explained, of course, that premature graying of the hair um, was a concern for a large percentage of the patients it showed up with because it is a sign of aging, especially in this young patient population. It can lead to low self-esteem or psychological comorbidity. comorbidity. And so we wanted to look at some of the factors that might play into the development of gray hair prematurely, like in the teens and, and 20s. And um, vitiligo and atopic conditions with or without a family history, smoking and alcohol consumption, and strangely enough, hair gel use were all um, factors that increased the risk. The author suggested further studies into hair gels. Dr. Um, Johnson and I were talking briefly before the podcast about maybe that's also a compensatory thing. What, what were you saying there, Luke? I was saying this is an association. It doesn't mean that having vitiligo causes gray hair, though that mechanism is a lot more plausible than hair gels cause gray hair. But what if people who have premature graying of the hair use hair gels to somehow disguise their gray hair or because they think they need to do something cool with their hair because it's gray. So it doesn't necessarily mean that using hair gels causes gray hair, but it does look like it's associated. The odds ratio is about four. So it's interesting. But again, correlation does not infer causation. There are some other reasons that people can get premature canities as well. There's a nice table in some of our textbooks, like the Bologna textbook that many of us are familiar with. There's a number of syndromes that can be associated with premature graying of the hair, like the progerias, for example. There's a, there's a big list of them. So whenever I have a patient who comes in with that concern, I take a look at that table and say, okay, they probably don't have any of these. It's probably just bad luck, for lack of a better explanation. <laughs> this same researcher has talked um, in other publications about ways to help treat premature graying and some of the things that she's described in some of her other literature, looking at vitamin supplementation, one specifically calcium pantosinate is sometimes prescribed for premature graying of the hair um, at a dose of 200 milligrams daily. However, other publications may indicate that a higher dose is necessary. So that is one therapeutic option that's been discussed, of course, camouflaging it with cosmetic products is also an option. And there's also been some recent studies into antioxidant-rich shampoos, but the efficacy of those has not yet been proven. A little discouraging that these were mostly people age 11 to 15, and those who consumed alcohol or smoked were more likely to have gray hair. So these are young people doing those things. And again, we don't know about the causation. Perhaps if you have gray hair, you're more likely to drink to forget your sorrows, for example. <laughs> But this is potentially something we can use clinically to discourage people from those behaviors that are not good for their overall health because, hey, it could also potentially be associated with premature graying of the hair. It's pretty cool. So that was a hair-raising topic, Luke. Do you have anything equally interesting? I sure hope so. I'm going to talk about allergic contact dermatitis. Ooh, I'm riveted. So this article is entitled Alternatives for Allergens in the 2018 American Contact Dermatitis Society Core Series, report by the American Contact Alternatives Group. There's a large group of people, obviously, who contributed, including Andrew Shaman and Rob Shaver. So this, by the way, was a CertLink article. So those of you who use CertLink for your maintenance of certification, this is one of those articles. And it discusses alternatives to common allergens for your patients who have allergic contact dermatitis. A portion of the article, especially the beginning, is kind of 
an advertisement for this service that the American Contact Society, sorry, American Contact Dermatitis Society puts out called the Contact Allergy Management Program or CAMP Camp. I imagine you're familiar with it, Michelle. I am. Camp is an awesome database. So you can go to their website or you can use an app and you input your patient's allergies and then Camp generates a list of safe options. You have to be a member of the American Contact Dermatitis Society to take advantage. It costs $335 initially and then $300 per year. You can get signed up at contactderm.org. It also includes a subscription to the journal Dermatitis. But it looks like it's free for residents and fellows. So if you're a resident or fellow, you may want to go to contactderm.org and set yourself up for it. it. Seems like a valuable resource, and it's this is a nonprofit endeavor, and I'm sure it takes a lot of people a lot of work. So I don't feel too badly that we have to pay for it. Though in the modern age, we're used to not paying for things and just ignoring advertisements along the side. So why is it important to have a resource like the camp? Well, a lot of reasons. Allergens are common. They may be listed in product labels under different names than you might be used to. They can cross-react with other ingredients, and they are not always disclosed in product labels. So this is some reasons why you might want a group of contact dermatitis experts vetting these products rather than some other way you might figure it out. Is this something you use in practice, Michelle? Uh, Yeah, definitely. I do a lot of patch testing because we're the referral center for our area. Um, and really having those alternatives to, to give to patients is very helpful, um, especially when they have a lot of allergens you're having to tap dance around. So when you've got somebody that has like a single contact allergen, helping them avoid products they're going to have a problem with is relatively straightforward, although there are some preservatives that are really hard to avoid. But if they have preservative, maybe fragrance, and then you add on top of it another allergy, like maybe pigmenting agent or something, Helping them find a product that they can safely use can get to be very much like the um, little whiteboard with a beautiful mind situation with the maps and all the strings and pieces and things. It just gets impossible. So this kind of database is very helpful. I don't do any patch testing because one of the awesome things, many awesome things about the University of Utah Department of Dermatology is we have a whole bunch of faculty and we've got a couple people who are experts in patch testing. So if I'm worried about allergic contact dermatitis, I just send people over to Dr. DeShazo or Dr. Powell and they figure it out. Shout out to you guys. Thanks. This article does highlight certain allergens of special note. So steroids, topical steroids. So obviously this can be difficult to tease out because the steroid treats the contact dermatitis that it also causes. Michelle, you might remember that in residency, we painfully attempted to learn the steroid groups, (laughs) classes A through D, which supposedly cross-react with each other. Mm -hmm. But according to this article, exceptions to the expected patterns of steroid cross-reaction are common. The article doesn't say, so why did we bother learning them? I just added that (laughs) by myself. And they say it's recommended that if you're allergic to a steroid... The safer steroids should be viewed as suggestions, and you should do a repeat open application test to make sure that they are actually tolerated. So this open application test, sometimes called a use test, sometimes called a poor man's patch test, but uh, I don't know, maybe poor man's patch test is pejorative in some fashion. Anyway, you just take the thing that you think might be causing you to have allergic contact dermatitis, and you rub it on your forearm, and then see if you react to it. This use test thing for steroids... They say you should use a cotton-tipped applicator, like a Q-tip, 
twice daily to the upper forearm for two weeks to make sure that this new steroid could be safe for you. They also say that data suggests that C16 methylated steroids are less allergenic than other steroids. And according to Wikipedia, C16 methylated steroids include the following. Betamethasone, clobetasol, desoxymetasone, mm-hmm. which I remember being taught is hypoallergenic. Perhaps yep. this is why. Yep. And mometasone. Mm-hmm. And then there's like 15 others on the list that I had never even heard of or thought were only available from an inhaled standpoint or something. So betamethasone, clobetasol, desoxymetasone, mometasone. There's a pretty decent range of strengths and potencies there as well. Desoxymetasone's kind of wimpy. Mometasone's in the middle. Betamethasone and clobetasol are at the top. So got some options there. Let's talk about hair. Hair dye. Allergies to hair dye is usually to paraphenylene diamine, PPD. And there's so much cross-reactivity that the camp doesn't list any safe alternatives. So they say consider testing to a, quote, full hair dye series. I suppose the patch test experts know how to get a hold of one of those. They say a safe alternative can usually be identified, and they have some specific product recommendations. So... Waterworks Permanent Powder Hair Color. They say contains paraphenylene diamine, but not fragrance or any other of the core allergens. There's a L'Oreal product called Inoa. It's PPD-free and fragrance-free, but does contain something else called paratoluene diamine sulfate. So if you've got somebody who's also allergic to that, you might use a product called Light Mountain Natural Hair Dye, which contains only three ingredients, henna, senna, and indigo. But you have to leave it on for an hour and a half for it to work, and it doesn't come in blonde shades and they just remind us that people who are allergic to paraphenylene diamine should also avoid henna tattoos those but, t- temporary henna tattoos so so the important thing with that is often it's referred to as like black henna or something like that but it's typically adulterated with paraphenylene diamine so the natural henna itself doesn't cross react with paraphenylene diamine but whenever somebody's kind of doing air quote henna tattoos and they're not doing it the tra- traditional way with the paste Often it's paraphenylene diamine adulterated. I had a patient with this a year or two ago. Got a henna tattoo at a street fair or something and was mm-hmm. all broke out in this eczematous dermatitis around it. And I was like, I feel so bad for you. But it's so awesome that I learned about this and here it is in front of me. <laughs> Enjoy these steroids. Um, they also talk about methyl isothiazolinone and its mm-hmm. partner, methyl chloroisothiazolinone. Partners in crime. Allergen of the year a couple years ago. And apparently they're in house paints. Mm-hmm. Almost all house paints. 96% of indoor house paints. So if somebody is particularly allergic to these things, they can get airborne allergic contact dermatitis from a room that has been painted with one of these paints. You have to let it dry for five and a half weeks before it might be safe to go into. Okay, wow. we talked about hair. Let's talk about nails. Nails, like hair, hips, toes. <laughs> Sorry. My wife has become a, a exercise instructor, and his that song is on the that playlist. Song is, that song is hilarious. Todrick, I think. Todrick. So allergens and nail polish include, this is probably pimpable, tosylamide <laughs> and formaldehyde resin. But if you've got somebody allergic to that, camp can help you. There are some really good alternatives. Um, if you want to glue on fake nails, you got to be look out for ethyl cyanoacrylate. It's in most nail glues, and there's not really a good alternative. There is a couple other things you might get allergic to that are related to nails, including methyl methacrylate and 2-hydroxyethyl methacrylate. If you've got allergies to one of those, you should avoid no-chip acrylic gel and dip nail products, but you can use most standard nail products. 
So there's still hope out there for those allergic to some sorts of nails. If you're allergic to food or food additives, well, these can cause oral contact mucositis if you put them in your mouth, and they can also cause a diffuse allergic contact dermatitis, which can be an interesting clinical presentation. So if you're allergic to something, like you get allergic contact dermatitis from it, and you eat it, then in some ways its molecules go all throughout your body, and you can get this sort of diffuse dermatitis reaction that can be hard to figure out. Food additives that can cause such things include balsam of Peru, cinnamic aldehyde, and fragrance mixes. If you're particularly allergic to balsam of Peru, you can eat a balsam-free diet. (laughs) Such things are published, and they include avoidance of tomatoes, citrus, cinnamon, and chocolate. And um, Earl Grey tea. Mm, Sorry, Picard. Balsam of of Peru is kind of um, oil of bergamot is what makes the, the Earl Grey tea Earl Grey. Isn't that sad? Well, it's sad if you were allergic to balsam of Peru, I suppose. Yes, if you're allergic. I do like Earl Grey tea. There are some other food additives that you might be allergic to, include benzoic acid, sodium benzoate, propylene glycol, and sorbic acid. So if you are allergic to those, you might modify your diet. If you get allergic contact dermatitis to formaldehyde, you should avoid aspartame. And if you have allergic dermatitis to compositae family, remember that's a bunch of plants, you should avoid bay leaf, sunflower seeds, lettuce, chamomile tea, endive, chicory, and artichoke. If you're allergic to propolis, you should avoid raw honey, but processed honey is probably okay. Speaking of formaldehyde, if you're allergic to it, you should avoid dryer sheets, wipes of all kinds, baby wipes and other sorts of wipes, and, quote, cheap paper towels. I guess the expensive luxury brand paper (laughs) towels might be formaldehyde-free. And finally, if you happen to have a violinist who is allergic to colophony or rosin... That's something they use in their violin bows and the violins, I think. There's a synthetic alternative available. This is a big article and there's more in there, but I thought it was meaty enough that we should split it across a few different episodes. So that was part one in our Alternatives to Allergic Contact Dermatitis series. Fascinating. I think, um, you know, all of these different presentations of our skin's immune system being able to misbehave itself tell us how complex and intricate our specialty is. Michelle, sometimes you like to come up with theme songs for our series. So if oh, we have yes. an allergic contact dermatitis series, maybe something by Muse, perhaps? <laughs> Which is also a great band, yes. Oh, man, but I'm trying to do something in their, in their tone because they had, um, let's see, you will patch test us. We will avoid patch test allergens, something like that. That was pretty good off the top of your head. What else can you tell me about Muse? So the Muses, ooh, exciting. I'm going to tell you a story in three parts. Are you ready, Luke? I was born ready. Fantastic. So first we're going to talk about pruritus and how much it stinks to have pruritus. Then we're going to meet Muse and figure out how Muses can help. And then we're going to figure out how we know that that might actually work. So we are going to review here a very meaty article from Stem Cell Research and Therapy. Um, this is an article that was published in that journal, it looks like in 2021. The authors, they have co-first authors of Wendy Fei and Junlin Wu, and the corresponding author, Gang Shen, out of China. So they start off by describing how much pruritus is not fun to have, which I totally agree. It's a chronic, sometimes long-lasting skin disease. It's hard to treat. They mention that it's a frequent symptom of a lot of skin diseases. Um, chronic pruritus is defined as pruritus lasting six weeks or more. It's hard to treat it and impacts the quality of life. 
and it's prevalent in a lot of things. Up to 25% of hemodialysis patients have chronic pruritus. Up to 100% of patients suffering from certain skin diseases have it. So it's very obtrusive and difficult. I didn't actually know that there was an official definition. Six weeks, it's officially chronic pruritus. Mm-hmm. It's a similar length to the length we use for urticaria and stuff. Um, so whenever we're thinking about conditions that can have chronic pruritus, atopic dermatitis is one of the common ones. We know that that's caused by an exacerbation and imbalance with an overrepresentation of type 2 immunity, CD4 positive, T lymphocytes, and their elaboration of interleukin-4 and IL-13, which is pimpable. And those are, of course, the drug targets of which drug? Dupilumab. Dupilumab. Also, there's a new one just approved. Mm-hmm. Tralakinumab, I believe it's called, an IL-13 blocker. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, Michelle, there's been an embarrassment of riches in terms of atopic dermatitis medications that were approved like in the last month. Because in addition to tralakinumab, there's two JAK inhibitors that have been approved for allergic con- or for atopic dermatitis in people aged 12 and up, mm-hmm. upadacitinib and abrocitinib. So that's exciting stuff. And you read my mind because the next thing I was going to say is they have different treatments that include the topical anti-inflammatories, barrier repair, oral Janus kinase inhibitors, like we just talked about, and then systemic IL-13 and IL-13 or isolated IL-13 blockade. So these are the issues that we're trying to treat. So then they introduce us to the muses. So let us meet the muses. So this sort of discussion will start off by defining what is a mesenchymal stem cell. These are non-hematopoietic progenitor cells that are derived from the mesenchyme or the stroma. Um, These are present in various tissues in adults and newborns and can be expanded from the following. Bone marrow, umbilical cord blood, adipose tissue, dental pulp, and skin. So these are specific types of stem cells. Mm-hmm. So this is a very, as you say, meaty article that has a lot in it that I just didn't know about some basic science type stuff. So I think sometimes when people refer to stem cell therapy and stem cells and so on, uh, at least I originally had the idea that there was like one one type of stem cell. There were stem cells and then there were other cells. But there's a bunch of different kinds of stem cells, it turns out. So these mesenchymal stem cells, of course, come from the mesenchyme. And it sounds like they can also be broken into different kinds of subclasses. They can be, and they can be um, obtained from different sources. But in general, the ones that they're looking at in this study are special because they are actually endogenous pluripotent stem cells. They're stress resistant and they're non-tumorigenic which is a good thing in a cell that has infinite potential for it to be non-tumorigenic. And it actually can alter the inflammatory milieu of the cells that it is around and favor an environment that goes toward wound healing as opposed to chronic inflammation. They can also spontaneously differentiate into multiple cell types so they can replace damaged cells and as well mediate um, tissue repair through helping sort of course correct the cytokines that are being elaborated in their vicinity, as well as by acting as raw materials and building blocks. And you're specifically talking about these multi-lineage differentiating stress-enduring cells? Exactly. So the multi-lineage is where they get the MU from. So the MU comes from the first two letters of the first word, multi-lineage differentiating stress-enduring cells, which are a type of these mesenchymal stem cells. Muse cells, for short. Yes. So that is what the muse cells are. They're not terribly common in the bone marrow. They are 1% to 2%. Um, of the cells uh, will have some stable characteristics that they can turn into these muse cells. So it's it's right. a refinement of a refinement. Out of all bone marrow stem cells, these muse cells represent 1% to 2% of them. 
Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, allergenic or xenogenic muse cells escape host immune rejection after administration, so you don't need immunosuppressive therapy following their use, even if they're xenografts. They can be used intravenously. That's been studied previously in other clinical trials. This study is actually going to look into direct injection near the area of involvement. So then there's a very well done method section. I'm going to kind of summarize that very briefly with the how they tested their hypothesis section of this presentation. So they had different mice models that they used. They also used a cell culture line. Their mouse room conditions were kept appropriately. Whenever you have mice, you have to say how many hours they're in light and dark. These mice were actually in a dark, dark cycle, 12 hours in 12 hours. Um, they had free access to food and water, so no stresses there. The mice that were in the experimental group were sensitized with uh, dinitrofluorobenzene, um, which is used to create basically an atopic dermatitis model in these mice. There was also a separate mouse model where they had skin wounding and a five millimeter long incision was made on the back of the mouse and either just the media, which is phosphate, phosphate buffered saline or PBS, or that buffer with muse cells in it were injected subcutaneously on the right side of the incision on day one of the incision. And then they followed the wound healing process. That's another set of experiments. So it looks like they're looking at two different applications for the muse. They're looking to see if they help the atopic dermatitis mm -hmm. and if it helps the injury that they caused to the mice heal exactly. up faster. Exactly. So those are the two mouse groups that they followed. They followed them in a couple of ways. They followed the appearance of the wound or the appearance of the dermatitis, and they looked at that for improvement over time. They looked at how fast the wound healed. And then they also did a behavioral test on the mice that had induced dermatitis, where they put them in a special little in sort of observation arena that they acclimated to for two days prior to the observation because mice can exhibit grooming behaviors as an expression of stress. So when they're in a new environment, they might do that more frequently and it might be miscounted as a behavioral indicator of pruritus. So they let the mice acclimate for two days in this little observation arena. And then they had an elevated little platform that the mouse went up on while they watched it for 30 minutes and counted how many times it scratched itself. So that's their behavioral testing. And then for the dermatitis itself, they looked at erythema, hemorrhage, area of involvement. Then for the cell culture line, they also looked at these Hakot cells, which are keratinocytes that arose from a spontaneous immortalizing event in culture. So these are um, able to be used to study different things that affect keratinocytes. And they looked at gene expression through PCR in those as well as sacrificed animals, cervical spinal cords, and the skin of their necks. So we are not used to too much talking about studies that use experimental animals like these mice. And I deal with humans and it always makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable to read about the mice that are experimented on and then quote sacrificed though as a scientist i feel like i understand the necessity so sacrificing is a fancy way of saying humanely kill the mice so that you mm -hmm. can then finish your study and they also took out a piece of their spinal cord as you mentioned mm -hmm. so if you get a little bit uneasy about the mice at least they're getting their money's worth, perhaps you might say, like they're doing a bunch of stuff to the mice before they sacrifice them. So instead of having to have another set of mice where they do the incision and another set of mice where they have to do something else, they're hopefully doing it all in these mice. And shout out to our furry brothers and sisters for helping us further understand science and the human body. 
Yes, and, and they actually, in their methods, even detailed that they used isoflurane to anesthetize the mice, and then they perfused them with sort of a preservative solution so they could do the work that they needed to do before they were kind of finally letting the animal go to rest. But um, long story short, the muse cells basically worked everywhere they were tested. So the muse cell administration reversed the itching and scratching behavior in the mice that had been sensitized with DNFB. It decreased the redness on the skin. It improved the wounds caused by scratching, and they recovered more quickly than the mice that were treated with the buffer only. The muse cells effect lasted, lasted for five days after the final administration. So it had some hang time. They also did a test where they actually labeled the muse cells. So those were injected subcutaneously on the back skin, and then they used cell tracker to follow where the muse cells ended up. They found that the muse cells were present in skin lesions. They spread around the lesions themselves, and some of them migrated into the dermis. The muse cells spread from the injection site and throughout the entire area of damaged skin, which the researchers believed was related to inflammatory mediators and cytokines, sort of causing some homing of those muse cells to the damaged area. At about 11 days after injection, only a few of the cells were still available, so we're not sure that there was any engraftment, it sounds like, there. Um, they found that the histological changes in the skin also improved with the muse cells. Um, the like severity of atopic dermatitis was alleviated significantly by the muse cells, which they showed in one of their figures, figure 2A. So that was impressive that they actually even looked on histopathology. And then there's some figures that show the progression of the mice that were treated or not treated. And you can see that the treated mice healed their area of atopic dermatitis, whereas those that were treated just with the buffer do not improve as quickly. They also show the wounding experiment and the wound healing much more quickly with the patients treated with the muse cells than the um, vehicle, which did not have very rapid healing. And they thought that there was actually an improvement in the expression of IL-17A, IL-6, and IL-33 mRNA in the, in the muse-treated group. So IL-33 is an important mediator of itch, IL-6 inflammation, and IL-17A is one of the things that can cause, you know, acanthotic changes in the epidermis. We know this is one of the cytokines that can be exacerbated potentially in other inflammatory diseases. So this is one of those articles that's really interesting, but we can't do anything with it in clinic right now. I can't prescribe muse cell stem cell therapy to my patients with atopic dermatitis. But it's definitely interesting, and part of me wonders if I can foresee a future, either utopian or dystopian or somewhere in the middle, where we use stuff like this to treat lots of things. You know, in a 50 years or 100 years, are we going to be like, did you see what those guys are doing 50 to 100 years ago? Methotrexate, azathioprine, and even these monoclonal antibodies, they could have just been rubbing stem cells on everybody. Everybody has stem cells. How come it took those dummies so long to figure it out? Well, Luke, despair no more, because part of the experiment actually used the supernatant of the muse cells, and that was actually also able to show a normalization of the chemokine profile, as well as accelerated wound healing and resolution of dermatitis. So the supernatant of the cells was able to be useful for that. Adipose-derived mesenchymal stem cells are also potentially a therapeutic um, option in this particular vein. And these are also something that potentially could be used in an autologous or a xenograft model. And potentially also the factors elaborated by those adipose-derived mesenchymal stem cells, which are available for commercial purchase and are used in some of regenerative medicine, are available as well in 
potentially applicable to some of your patients. What I thought was really fascinating about this also was that they looked at the neurologic system for chronic changes related to pruritus and talked about the fact that you get activated astrocytic cells in the spinal column with chronic pruritus and inflammation, and that those changes that active that of the activated astrocytic cells that that occur with the chronic pruritus were normalized and improved with the injection of the mu cells or application of their supernatant. So certainly some directions for potential further therapies. Uh, they they indicated that even though this was a relatively intensive process, the materials and equipment needed to do it were not in and of themselves prohibitively expensive. So there may be some way to apply this on a broader scale that's actually executable in the real world. It will be interesting to see what more comes of these muse cells, both for dermatology <laughs> and for other sorts of medicine. I was happy mm -hmm. to learn about muse cells, if nothing else. Yes, Luke, we'll have to muse about the possibilities. I'm trying to get to amusing, but it's it's not really amusing. It's just, you know, fascinating. <laughs> Do you think any of the mice had melasma? You know, if they did, I bet you might be talking about something to help them out next. That's exactly right. So this is from the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. And of course, whenever we have an article from this journal, you like to remind us that dermatologists were venereologists first. So I have now done that for you. Thank you. It, it is called oral ketotifen associated with famotidine for the treatment of facial melasma, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And the authors include Drs. Diaz and Miote. These folks are out of Brazil. So this is a small trial of facial melasma in women, not mice. And it showed improvement when they took ketotifen one milligram a day, as well as famotidine, 40 milligrams a day. So famotidine, I think we know, is an H2 blocker. It's pretty well available over the counter. It's possible that it's Pepsid. It's got, you know, some brand name as an H2 blocker. And then ketotifen is a second generation H1 blocker that is also a mast cell stabilizer. And as far as I can tell, in the United States, it's available commercially only as an eye drop. So not great for those of us in the United States. However, I called up one of our local compounding pharmacies and they can make up 30 one milligram pills for only 30 bucks. So if you're somewhere with a compounding pharmacy, we probably still implement this treatment plan if you wanted. So ketotifen one milligram plus famotidine 40 milligrams a day. There were 68 women total, half in the treatment arm, half in placebo, and they all used a tinted sunscreen. So remember, we've talked in previous episodes that you want a sunscreen with iron oxide, especially if you're worried about melasma, because that blocks particular wavelengths of the light can worsen melasma specifically. And most of the sunscreens that contain iron oxide are tinted. And after undergoing this treatment, they looked at the women 60 days after treatment, and they measured their melasma in a number of different metrics, such as the Modified Melasma Area Severity Score, the M-Massey, which showed improvement. 23% improved in that metric versus 13% in the placebo arm. They also used colorimetry, which is using a device to check the color and showed improvement again in the treatment arm. And then patient perceived difference was improved, but not by a ton. 57% in the treatment arm versus 42% in the placebo arm, meaning there's a number needed to treat of 6.5. So if you're trying to make people better, you have to treat six and a half women with this treatment before you get one of them to improve with their melasma. They also checked melasma quality of life metrics. 
and they had blinded investigators check for improvement, and those two metrics were not statistically different in the treatment arm versus the placebo arm. So not dramatic, but these are safe treatments, right? They're both antihistamines, basically. But speaking of adverse effects, somnolence was the main one they looked at, and it was reported by 48% of the participants in the treatment arm and 22% of the placebo group. That's kind of a lot mm-hmm. in both arms. So about half of people treated with pretty standard antihistamines felt tired and like 22% of just people <laughs> with somnolence. Yeah, that's maybe. a lot. <laughs> They're melasma, so maybe they were pregnant and so they maybe have little kids, which definitely can increase <laughs> one's somnolence. I assure you of that. But especially if your patient isn't one of the 48% to get somnolent on these medicines, certainly safe enough to give it a try, I would say. But why would this work? They're antihistamines. Why would this work for melasma? Well, a couple reasons, maybe. So mast cells hanging out in the upper dermis apparently are markers of chronic photo exposure. And it turns out they're more prominent in melasma than in unaffected adjacent skin. Also, mast cells can degranulate under a number of different stimulators, such as heat or UV exposure. And they also point out that several treatments for melasma reduce them. So those treatments include oral tranexamic acid. We discussed that, by the way, in episode 17. Also topical nicotinamide. We discussed that one in episode 16 in our Cosmocynical review. Treatments for melasma and then topical corticosteroids. All of those reduce mast cells. And so perhaps these mast cells play a key role in melasma pathogenesis. Intriguing. In addition, histamine stimulates melanogenesis through H2 receptors in melanocytes. How about that? I didn't know melanocytes had H2 receptors for histamine, but apparently they do. And they make more melanin. There's also this protein called stem cell factor. It's overexpressed in melasma, apparently. And it also is important in mast cells in terms of their survival, growth, migration, and activation. So stem cell factor is a big deal for your mast cells to stick around and do their thing. Stem cell factor binds to the C-kit receptor, which is a mast cell receptor. I believe it's also an immunostain, if Mm -hmm. you're a dermatopathologist looking for mast cells. And if the stem cell factor binds to the C-kit receptor, that can influence melanogenesis in the melanocyte cell cycle. So ketotophen. Why ketotophen specifically? Well, apparently it decreases the release of bioactive mediators such as histamine and leukotrienes and proteases. So it seems like it's more than just an H1 blocker. It has these other actions as well. And then famotidine is an H2 receptor antagonist that suppresses histamine-mediated melanogenesis in cultured human melanocytes. H1 and H3 antagonists have no inhibitory effect. So really it sounds like we're using the ketotophen for this other action, the decrease in the release of histamine, leukotrienes, and proteases rather than for its antihistamine properties, whereas famotidine apparently it is because of the antihistamine properties because of these H2 receptors on melanocytes. And ketotophen is one of those that always gets me because my brain wants it to be an NSAID. Right. But I'm thinking Likewise. of ketorolac, yeah, because you're thinking of ketorolac, I think, probably with that one, because it just sounds like it's an NSAID, but it's an antihistamine. So, again, pretty easy, especially if you're a compounding pharmacy, pretty safe, maybe a useful addition to the other stuff that we do for melasma. And ketotophen is in some over-the-counter eye drops. It's in alloy eye drops, which I think are over-the-counter. So I wonder about that application potentially. 
like drinking the eye drops? No, no, no. Using it topically. (laughs) Don't don't drink eye drops. That's a bad idea. Like, especially if you get any of the active ingredient that's in Visane in it, it can be a really bad idea. Well, it looks like they're fairly easy to mix up in a capsule. Okay, so we don't have to go that hard. That's exciting. Don't make it difficult, but that's that's both itchy and, you know, fascinating. I don't know. I love the I love the histamine access part with the melasma. This, a lot of melasma experts like to talk about the fact that we think of it as a pigmentation disease, but there's definitely a vascular component as well. And we now are talking here about the interactions between histamine and melanocytes. I think it's all interrelated. Yes, the human body is amazing. It's got mused cells and then it's got melasma, which apparently has like a whole bunch of stuff going on. Who knew? I mean, it's a fascinating condition. I'm trying to link this. You know what else can cause brown spots on the skin, Luke? I sure do. Neurofibromatosis. It's one of the things that can do that. You can get all sorts of brown spots. You can get like axillary freckling, which we call crow's sign. Ding, ding, ding. Actually, macules. You can get hyperpigmentation over some of the plexiform neurofibromas, all sorts of things. So we're going to look at this article out of Genetics and Medicine from 2021. The chief authors are um, co-first authors Edvard Johansson and Rup A. Rupi, probably, A. Um, Kalion Pa'a, potentially, um, and Juha Pelotonen. These are out of Finland, um, specifically Turku and Helsinki, Finland. And the Finland part of that becomes important because they are using the National Finnish database, which has a lot of recording of information for their entire populace. And they also have nationalized healthcare system. So they have a lot of data that they can analyze. Finland, Finland, Finland. That's the country <laughs> for me. Spamalot reference. Anyone didn't Finland, catch that. Finland, Finland. Anyway, um, it is a super funny song. If you haven't heard it, you need to look it up. So this study wanted to look specifically at whether or not individuals with neurofibromatosis type 1 fare worse than individuals without NF1 in terms of economic well-being. So this is sort of a unique study for this. They're going to look at a rare heritable genetic disease and look at the economic impact of that on people. I never would have thought to do a study like this. Yeah, this is kind of a fascinating study. And um, I was putting together a lecture for my residents on neural tumors, and I was going over the neurofibromatosis and the you know increased screening recommendations that have recently been recommended for that condition. And um, this article uh, came up in one of my searches and I was like, well, I've got to look into this. This is fascinating. So I have to applaud the authors for actually thinking of examining this question um, because I think it's not something we tend to think about as much as we probably should. Did you say there are updated screening recommendations for neurofibromatosis? There are, and I will illuminate those here in a second. Um, So as we know, neurofibromatosis has been recognized for over a century. It was first reported by von Recklinghausen in 1882, further characterized by Crow et al. in 1956. And its incidence is 1 in 3,000 to 1 in 2,000 live births. It's caused by mutations in the F1 gene. So Luke, do you remember how it's inherited? Autosomal dominant, but about 50% of cases are in spontaneous mutations. Yes, that is true. So autosomal dominantly inherited with variable penetrance and 50% of patients are de novo mutations, so they don't have any family history. That's actually something else these authors looked at, which I thought was quite canny of them to think about the fact that if you have neurofibromatosis as a familial inherited disease, then its impact on your entire family's um, 
like financial well-being, if there's more than one family member involved, might be more profound. So if you have a family where a parent and a child have NF1, there might be more um, economic burden on that family than a person with a spontaneous mutation who has um, developed that. So it is a genetic tumor syndrome that you know is caused by a mutation in a tumor suppressor gene. And this is a concept I don't think we explain very well sometimes. Um, so the atop, sorry, the, the conditions that are inherited autosomal dominantly basically demonstrate their findings when you get a second hit to that same gene spontaneously. So whenever you have a patient that has like NF1 as a germline mutation, one of the copies of the NF1 gene is mutated in all of their cells. When they have loss of heterozygosity, meaning that second remaining allele becomes mutated, then you get tumors and findings. So that is an important part of talking about neurofibromatosis. And remember that it also exists in this family of things we call the rasopathies that include things like Noonan syndrome, Legia syndrome, Costello syndrome, and cardiofaciocutaneous syndrome, because they all act basically through the same pathway um, and utilize RAS signaling. So they have a lot of overlapping findings. Stuff that I hypothetically know as a pediatric dermatologist. Yes. And so um, when we're talking about how to take care of these patients, recently, really a lot more attention has been paid to the connection between cancer syndromes and tumors that can occur in patients with NF1 and improving their screening. One of the ones that's gotten the most attention is breast cancer. There's actually a five-fold increased risk of breast cancer in women with NF type 1 under 50 years of age versus patients without NF1 in that age group. So much earlier onset of breast cancer and a higher rate of that occurring. So definitely these patients need early and continuous screening. Um, so the NF1 has been now associated with cancer types more than we'd previously known. And it's also more likely that a patient from NF1 will die from several cancer types compared to another person in the general population with that type of cancer, but without NF1. So for example, if you had melanoma and NF1, you'd have a more like a 33% chance of dying from that cancer within five years than if you did not have NF1, but just had the same melanoma, you'd have like 8% um, chance of dying in those five years. So it, it can impact both survivability with the cancer as well as incidence. And if that wasn't bad enough, apparently you also don't make any money. There's, there's a lot of potential comorbidities. So this is, I think, an important thing to examine and also potentially take some action to ameliorate, which is one of the things that they bring forward. So they found 692 individuals with NF1 from the Finnish total population-based cohort. 692 of those patients um, looked at, of, of that group of 692, 418 had sporadically associated NF, and 274 were familial cases. So they were actually also to compare within families that had NF1 as a familial diagnosis versus people who came from a family without any NF1 and had a spontaneous mutation that caused the disease. In all patients, it significantly worsened economic well-being. They found that low education, increased morbidity, and reduced labor market participation was a partial explainer for this fact, but it was also independently associated with lower income even after adjusting for those factors. So even when you adjusted for the educational status, the morbidity of the disease, and the, the decreased amount of time that people with NF1 were able to work, they still had lower income. There was a larger negative effect on income from work than on total income, which makes sense because of the Finnish social security system being as robust as it is. So it was able to compensate significantly for the labor market losses in people with NF1. And interestingly enough, NF1 did have a larger impact on the economic inequality for men than for women, which may reflect different um, gender roles in their society 
It might also reflect different levels and burdens of disease. Um, but their conclusion from this, which is appropriately drawn, is that this hereditary rare disease may convey worse economic well-being over several generations compared to healthy controls. So then they talk about what is a rare disease. A rare disease has different definitions in different countries. In the U.S. right now, they say it's a disease that affects less than 200,000 people. If you look at our population size and um, kind of try to figure that out, we have about 329 million people in the United States and about 164,000 people have NF1 that we know about. Um, and so that's right around that 1 in 2,000 to 1 in 3,000 group risk. Uh, so these are things that don't affect a whole lot of people, but there are a lot of rare diseases. So even though the rare diseases themselves are relatively rare, four to 6% of the population globally suffers from some rare disease. So it's, it's important for people to have knowledge of the impacts of these different rare conditions, as well as to try to help treat patients more appropriately for that. So that's sort of what the definition of a rare disease is and how common NF1 is in our particular country. NF1 is increased with an increased risk of cancer in your lifetime. Now, this is something that sounds wrong until you look into background data. So here in this document, it states, and it is correct, NF1 is associated with a 60% lifetime risk of cancer, which sounds insane. That sounds crazy high until you look at like the American Cancer Society and you find out that basically 41% um, of otherwise healthy adults will develop cancer in their lifetime. So if you're looking at lifetime risks of cancer, there's an increase in NF1 patients, but it's not as insane as it sounds. So 60% lifetime risk of developing cancer. And of course, also learning some patients will have learning disability. Some people will have absenteeism due to other medical problems. They bring forward tuberous sclerosis complex and Lynch syndrome as other syndromes that might need to be looked at like this. Um, so let's see here. So the reasons why people have less income when they have neurofibromatosis, I'm sure, are multifactorial. And we can speculate about all kinds of reasons that they might be. But the fact is that it's real. And especially in a disease like this, it's like not somebody's fault that they have neurofibromatosis. And so I think the question then arises, should society do something to make up for the fact that these patients have decreased incomes. It just doesn't seem right, especially since they have to deal with all this other stuff. And they also examined, you know, how coming from a family with NF1 versus having it develop sporadically affects the patient. They noticed that patients from familial cases were identified earlier, which makes sense. They know what they were looking for. They also did have more hospital visits and a higher likelihood of not having as high of an educational attainment, which might be a marker for the effect of the condition on the um, financial and uh, socioeconomic wellness of the entire family uh, when, when you're dealing with a familial rated, related disease. So they kind of prove in a, different, in a different fashion, multiple places in the paper, the fact that this condition definitely impacts the person's ability to earn over their lifetime, their financial well-being, as well as their ability to access healthcare. Now, a lot of these problems are partially ameliorated in the Finnish system, which utilizes a sort of um, social redistribution of income, which I know would be very, them's be fighting words in the United States, of course. But um, they do talk here about the Nordic model and the fact that there's 
some protection for these patients in, the, in Finland. They use that model, but it does, of course, necessitate higher taxation and social income redistribution, which I know that is a um, hot spot for a lot of people. So I do think that paying attention to the specific needs of patients with unique diseases that impact their ability to have gainful employment is an important thing to focus on as we try to take better care of all of our patients. They point out that, you know, sometimes employability may be related to the disfigurement that can be the result of NF1 that might hinder employment um, and also potentially impact social interactions. Um, They also kind of wanted to talk about the fact that in a patient population that doesn't have this kind of social support, the economic disparities may be much greater. And so I do think that in some countries, um, including ours, we need to look at this and think about how we care for these patients that really do have a very uphill climb. Um, So I think that this was a well done article. It looks at the social implications of this disease um, with a kind of very sympathetic and um, holistic approach. And, you know, it is food for thought when we're taking care of patients with a burden of illness. I think that, you know, their idea about looking at tuberous sclerosis and Lynch syndrome as well, also syndromes that can concur, can, that can convey an increased risk of different kinds of organ system cancers, as well as potential disfigurement and potential impacts on intellectual ability or capacity, as well as potentially increases in absenteeism from work or school. We need to think about how that impacts the patient's lives. I like that it illuminated an aspect of this disease, which is within our wheelhouse that I never really thought about and further, you know, inspires us, I hope, to treat our patients holistically as whole people who have other stuff going on in their lives and not having as much of an income as somebody else is potentially a lot more important to them than the stuff that I can intervene on as a dermatologist, but something that I should still think about. Yeah. And then for those cancer associations, you know, we, I think what we all would think of the neural system ones, like the MPNSTs, the malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors that can be more frequent, but other kinds of cancer that are more common in patients with NF1 include sarcomas, breast cancers, and endocrine cancers, melanoma, which is one, of course, we need to pay attention carefully for breast cancer, ovarian cancer, as well as, of course, any of the central nervous system disruptions and ovarian cancer. So our patients who have NF1 need a little closer monitoring for certain organ systems, and they definitely need multidisciplinary care. I'm going to close with a really short article about what trichodysplasia spinulosa looks like under the dermatoscope. So this is from Jad Case Reports, and it's from Columbia University in New York. The authors include Connor Stonecipher and Stephanie Galatano. So trichodysplasia spinulosa, it's rare. It's a cutaneous eruption in immunosuppressed patients. I've also heard it called trichodysplasia of immunosuppression. It's caused by a virus, kind of weird. In fact, a polio virus. It's called the TS-associated poliomavirus. So there you go. And it looks like folliculocentric papules with protruding keratin spicules. Looks a little bit like KP, but kind of like funny looking spiky KP. Mm-hmm. It's most frequently on the face and the ears. You can also get some associated alopecia of the eyebrow as a result. So these authors describe a patient who has trichodysplasia spinulosa and looked at it under the dermatoscope and thought, huh, this looks fairly distinctive. Maybe we should take some pictures and tell other people about that. So 
if you're trying to figure out if your immunosuppressed patient just has bad KP or trichodysplasia or spinulosa or something else, the most specific dermoscopic clue is bright, right spicules that protrude peripherally from the follicular openings. They say in contrast to the dark, confined keratin plugging in other hyperkeratotic disorders, it is both the stark whiteness of the spicules and their considerable length that are characteristic of trichodysplasia spinulosa. And they've got some nice pictures here. And if you go to their the article and take a look, they almost look like little hairs sticking off to the side. Mm -hmm. But those are the spicules sticking out in all directions kind of haphazardly. In skin of color, you might get perifollicular hyperpigmentation with a central white or pink circle. So take a look. If you have a patient with trichodysplasia spinulosa and you want to treat it, well, you could reduce their immunosuppression. You could use some antivirals like topical sodafovir or systemic valgancyclovir. Woohoo! That's all we've got for you today, guys. So today we learned that premature graying of the hair is associated with smoking, drinking, vitiligo, a family history of premature graying of the hair, and hair gels. We learned about some alternatives if you have a patient who's got allergic contact dermatitis to something or other. And we also learned about CAMP, which you can sign up for to get a list of potentially safe alternatives. We learned about Muse cells. And in 50 years, you can look back at this episode and say, aha, that's where I first learned about Muse cells. And I'm injecting mine right now to solve all my problems. <laughs> we talked about how ketodafin and famotidine might help with melasma. We talked about how people with neurofibromatosis type 1 have lower incomes than people who don't have it. And we talked about what trichodysplasia spinulosa looks like under the dermatoscope. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today, guys. Thanks to Michelle for being over COVID and being back with us today. Thanks, of course, to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us, Michelle. And thanks to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and member of Team Dermosphere, who keeps our social media accounts moving along. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com. It's also got all our archives, including links to all of the original articles. So if you think to yourself, I've got a patient with blank, and I remember they talked about blank on Dermosphere, you can look it up on our website and find the article about blank. You can also find all of our archives on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want even more of Michelle and I, you can listen to our <laughs> other podcast. So our other podcast is called SkinCast. It is a public-facing podcast. It's shorter than Dermosphere, only 15 to 20 minutes, and it's aimed at lay people who want to learn how to take the very best care of the skin they're in. Check it out. And otherwise, check us out again in two weeks. We'll see you then.